From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. While the COVID-19 pandemic continues, efforts are beginning to reopen the country and move to a new normal that is guided by important public health principles. With us to discuss the latest information is Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. All the news uh, um, this weekend has been about reopening the country and restarting the economy. Since we last spoke on Friday, what have you been seeing regarding trends, uh, regarding numbers for COVID-19? We've got about 100,000 more documented infections in in the U.S. and about 5,000 more deaths. While there's starting to be some slowdown, we're not there yet. I, I understand that people are sort of tired of the social distancing, but we're just starting to, to see the fruit of those efforts from 14 days ago. Let's not jump the gun prematurely. That, that's sobering statistics to hear. As you said, obviously, we're trying to think about getting back to life as normal as we can. But as an infectious disease expert, what sort of principles do you think we should be adhering to as we slowly start trying to reopen things? That's actually a, a very good and, and excellent question because it really puts the finger on, all right, if we're going to do this, under what conditions do we do it? And there are really sort of four of those. One is that we need to see the caseload really bend down low, which is an indication of decreased community transmission. Secondly, we need the ability to do testing, and we're not quite there yet. Once we have that testing, the ability to do contact tracing so that we can quarantine and isolate remaining cases. And the last one, particularly for some of our major cities, you don't want to do that unless you have hospital and medical care capacity. You mentioned about testing and there's, there's some confusion about testing. You know, people think, well, if I don't have the symptoms, why do I need to be tested? Can you just explain from the infectious disease aspect, why is testing so important? It's important for two reasons. The molecular diagnostic tests we have, what you hear called RT-PCR, those are tests designed to tell us, are you currently infected or have the virus? Um, So that's important because we're going to want to isolate those or quarantine those individuals, not let them work, for example, and transmit it to others. The other test is serology tests. These are tests done after the fact to say, were you infected in the recent past and might that mean immunity? Obviously, the advantage of knowing that is you're, you're not concerned about your own risk anymore. And you're able to go back to work. Uh, let's say you're a healthcare worker, for example. You're able to go back to work 
and not have to use uh, the same level of PPE potentially. So when we've talked about testing in the past on the show, we, we've talked about, as you said, the RT-PCR, the serology testing. We've also talked about putting the nasal swab down. You know, when we're hearing about we don't have enough tests, mm. what are we talking about? Are we talking about those? Are we are talking about the finger prick test? What are we talking about? We're really talking about all of them. I neglected to say one other important part about doing the serology testing is to know what percent of a community has been infected? If we were to find out, for example, that 70%, that's not going to be the case, but 70% of a community had been infected, well, you're getting up toward herd immunity and it's likely safe to do so. But if it's more like 5% or 10%, you still have 90% of your population at risk. So if that's the case indeed, and then we have an, an uptick in cases, if we go back too quickly, what do you see happening there? Do you see us then reinstigating all these stay-at-home orders? Exactly, and I, and I think that would put us in a very tough position. Uh, would people really be willing to flip the switch that rapidly and basically start all over because of the lag period between when you get infected and when you start developing symptoms and then when you actually uh, end up needing medical care? So going premature in opening means we might start all of this over again. Last week, we also talked about some of the promising news regarding treatment, and, and in mm. particular, remdesivir. Since we last spoke, has there been anything new that's come onto the horizon regarding treatments? Yes, uh, Sanjan, thank you for the question, because I think this is a real bright spot. A paper was released. Um, this is an NIH group where they took two groups of monkeys exposed them both to SARS-CoV-2 at an appropriate dose, and then 12 hours later started infusing remdesivir. So one group got remdesivir, one group got placebo. In the group that got remdesivir, viral titers were dramatically suppressed. They didn't develop pulmonary infiltrates. They didn't die. And in the placebo-treated monkeys, none of that was the case. At least in this small animal study, remdesivir was very helpful. But the second point, and, it, and it's a significant point for us as clinicians treating humans, is that it's very likely, as many of us thought, that you're going to have to initiate that antiviral treatment as early as possible in the course of disease. This is exactly the case for influenza. We try to get in, uh, antiviral drugs into influenza patients within 48 hours, at most 72 hours after they develop symptoms. So I think the way it's going to turn out is that remdesivir will be useful, but we're going to really have to push it toward the left. That is very early in the course of infection, particularly for people who have risk factors that's very promising uh, indeed. And last week, we also ex uh, explained that perhaps you're the most infectious with this disease before you actually develop any symptoms. So it just shows how, er how important getting uh, early testing as applicable with possible treatment early may, may be where we need to go with this. Absolutely. And, and also why this lag period between when you are infectious and then you're talking another 14 days before you start seeing the consequences of that transmission to other people. And that's why this is a, this is a slow process in terms of uh, reopening.
Last week, we also talked about the other infections that can happen with COVID-19 and the other pathologies. Uh, we, you just mentioned about pulmonary disease. Uh, what else are we learning regarding how this is affecting other areas of the body? It is very apparent that having one infection does not, in some magical way, protect you against another infection. So you think about during the winter season in the United States, for example, depending on where you live, you're exposed to SARS-CoV-2, influenza A, influenza B, RSV, measles, mumps, pertussis, human metanumavirus, rhinovirus. Well, that's about eight or nine right there. And in this study, what was shown is that about 20% of people who were COVID-19 positive were also infected with another respiratory pathogen. That's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, a co-infection may, may mean worse disease. The other thing is that some of those other viruses and respiratory bacteria are treatable. So we wouldn't want to just do a COVID test and say positive or negative and then treat uh, therapeutically based on that. They may have influenza and that's treatable. They might have pertussis and that's treatable. So we, we would want to know that and, and it's an important clinical fact to bear in mind. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's interesting how you mentioned all of those viruses. So as we obviously get through the summer and we go into the winter, the flu epidemic will start again. And, and so to prevent this, we talk about vaccinations. What is your message to the, to the public regarding the flu vaccine and whether they should be having that or not? Yeah, well, because that will be the most prominent respiratory virus that, that circulates, we really do want people to get influenza immunized as soon as the vaccine becomes available. Now, we do not have a culture of that in the U.S. In our highest risk patients, which are the elderly, maybe we get 60% of them to take the flu vaccine. An important part of that is that uh, COVID-19 and influenza symptoms overlap essentially identically. So it's going to cause the individual a lot of concern. It again causes this surge capacity that the medical system can't easily meet. So by getting influenza vaccine, you're taking a good deal of that respiratory disease off the table so that we can concentrate on COVID-19 and you're decreasing the chance of co-infection, meaning if you did get infected with COVID-19, you're likely to not have as severe a course as if you also had influenza infection. And so Dr. Poland, a lot of people will, will get the flu vaccine, but they'll push it off. They'll say, well, I'll get it in February or March. What, what's your message to those uh, people? Yeah, again, because as we, very likely as we move into our fall, uh, we're going to start seeing cases of COVID-19 because of the burden of disease that will occur in the Southern Hemisphere. It'll recirculate back up here is almost certainly the case. So I think perhaps uniquely in this regard, we'll want people to get their influenza vaccine early and not delay it. So as we're looking to try and get back to normality, we're entering the summer season, families are thinking of vacations, etc. As we've talked about how this disease process is, is the new norm now, what is your thoughts as, as people try and think about these plans? What I think is likely to happen, and this is going to be a choreographed dance, <laughs> is the way I would put it, is I think as we get into our actual summer, we'll see cases decrease and some phased in normalcy. 
my fear and my concern is then as we move into the fall and winter time in the U.S., in the Northern Hemisphere, we're going to start seeing increasing numbers of cases. And, and the reason for that is we won't have herd immunity. My guess is it'll be, depending on the geographic location, 5 10%, maybe something like that will have been infected, but the vast majority of us will not have been. And then very likely we'll have another outbreak like what we've seen. So it'll be this slowly coming out of the, 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 the distancing we're doing now, more and more normalcy. Then if I'm right about the fall, then phasing right back into the social distancing, mask wearing, uh, maybe teleworking, et cetera, till we get through or develop a vaccine that can be used. You know, while we're all getting tired of this, I, I think we're getting a handle on this. We're learning a lot. A fantastic amount of scientific and medical knowledge has been generated. There's, there's more to go, but we're seeing really encouraging signs in terms of uh, the patience and forbearance of changing our lives to bend this curve down is starting to work. So let, let's not fatigue and give up. In addition, we're seeing some real medical breakthroughs, I think, in terms of these early studies with uh, remdesivir in particular. And, and I think this is going to give us a, a lot of motivation to start doing clinical trials very early in the course of disease with remdesivir. Always a, a pleasure and an honor to speak to Dr. Uh, Greg Poland, a Mayo Clinic COVID-19 expert. Thanks for joining us today again, Greg. My pleasure. You're doing a lot of good by educating. I appreciate it. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. As COVID-19 continues to spread, the World Health Organization says more than 117 million children in 37 countries may be missing out on receiving life-saving measles vaccine. The World Health Organization has issued some guidelines to help countries sustain immunization activities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here to discuss this is Mayo Clinic primary care physician, Dr. Tina Arden. Dr. Arden, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, you know, it seems an obvious question, but I think it's important to, to answer. Why is children immunization and vaccine so important? Well, I think the current situation with the novel coronavirus just shows us how scary a world can be when we have a disease that we can't treat or prevent. Um, so when we talk about childhood vaccines, the whole concept is that we have vaccines that can prevent serious illnesses that can be harmful and even fatal for our children. And so we don't want to lose that opportunity to stay on top of those things that we have control over right now. So there's uh, some parents, they have some concerns about vaccines uh, for various reasons. What is your message to them? I, you know, I have three kids. I'm a mom of three. My oldest is six. I have a four-year-old and I have a, um, a younger son who's 15 months. So I've gone through the vaccine process myself with my own children. I personally followed the same guidelines with the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics um, for my own family. And I certainly understand right now being very thoughtful 
mindful about taking your children outside the home for doctor's visits and for vaccines. I would encourage families who have concerns about what that feels like for them based on maybe where they live, if that's a hot spot with the current um, COVID-19 versus um, how old their children are, what vaccines are due for, to have some conversations with their clinics and their pediatricians and family doctors about what the priorities are at this point in time. I mean, there may be some situations where we can wait a little bit to, to have that well-child visit and have that vaccine. Or maybe for that child, getting that immunization is extremely important. We don't want to lose time to do that and do it in a safe practice. So many of our clinics and hospitals have been weighing the risk and benefits of seeing our children in the outpatient setting and making sure we have some good processes in place to make that as safe as possible, knowing how important these vaccines are. Because as you said, we, we don't want to bring people into the hospital unnecessarily because of fears of exposure. And so, as you said, I think it is important to contact your healthcare provider to discuss when and if they should have it and how it should be delivered. So what are the, some, what are the most important vaccines for children? Well, right now, one of the vaccines that's really on our radar are, is the measles vaccine. So we know that there have been more outbreaks of measles even here in the United States. And that is a, um, a potentially deadly illness that we want to prevent. So that's a vaccine, of course, we've had a lot of attention on for some time, but we don't want to get off track with the timing of that vaccine. I also think about pertussis. You know, that's another one that can be extremely harmful for our babies and our younger children. Um, and so making sure that we're staying on top of that schedule for pertussis as well. You, my saying will always be all vaccines are important, but I definitely think about those two in particular right now. And what about when one enters the winter season, the flu vaccine? What are your thoughts about the flu vaccine for children? Yes, um, I've done lots of videos and talks about the flu vaccine um, for many reasons. One, as a mom with young children, and also um, having been pregnant through three different flu seasons as well, thinking about mom and baby. And so um, the flu vaccine, I've always said, is extremely important for anyone to get who's old enough to get it. Um, I think this season, it'll be even that much more important to do as well. Obviously, we know how important vaccination has been. It's, it's uh, essentially eradicated some diseases back in the past, which were life-threatening. In terms of delaying childhood vaccines, uh, are we concerned about these diseases possibly coming up again? So I think that is a concern, yes, and that's why it's been in our conversations right now with our parents and families in terms of what visits we prioritize. Um, we don't want to get too far behind with those vaccines. You know, I explained to parents and families that the reason they're recommended at the time they're recommended is that that is the time that we get the most protection from them. You know, there is a time where maybe you're not going to do a polio vaccine anymore because that child is too old, um, or maybe there's another concern that we can't administer that vaccine at that time. Um, so we want to really make sure we're following that schedule because that schedule is there for a reason. Tina, anything else we need to discuss? No, again, I really want parents and families to um, encourage them to reach out. You know, I think there's a lot of fear and misinformation out there about what we're providing in terms of care for our patients. And so I'm happy to talk to our own families here to let them know what services we're providing, uh, you know, address their concerns, make sure they feel comfortable with that, again, knowing how important these vaccines are for our children. We've been discussing children, masking, and routine vaccines with Mayo Clinic primary care physician, Dr. Tina Arden. Thanks so much for joining us. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us.
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Sleep is an important part of staying heart healthy. Adults who clock fewer than seven hours a night are more likely to have health problems such as heart attack and stroke, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says adequate sleep can help you reduce your risk of many heart-related issues. So how much sleep do adults need to be heart healthy? Dr. Kobetsky says everybody's different and individual sleep needs vary, but the general rule is for adults to get seven to nine hours a night. Now, why is sleep important to heart health? Well, a couple of reasons. If you have a condition such as obstructive sleep apnea keeping you from getting sufficient sleep, you're at increased risk of arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats. Arrhythmias increase your risk of serious events such as stroke, heart attack, and sudden cardiac death. The second thing is if you don't sleep adequately, It's been shown that other habits are not as good. You don't eat as well. You eat more junk food. Plus, you might be too tired to exercise. So talk to your health care provider about ways to help you sleep better to improve your heart health. And in other news, eating a healthy diet is not only good for the body, but also the mind. Angie Murad, a dietitian with the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says eating certain foods can help improve brain health and preserve brain function. There's mounting scientific evidence that shows sticking to a method called the mind diet can make a difference in your risk of cognitive decline and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Murad says mind stands for Mediterranean Dash Intervention for neurodegenerative delay. It's a combination of two healthy diets, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, and includes a variety of brain-friendly foods. It emphasizes leafy greens, berries, nuts, specifically ones that are high in omega-3, fish, and an additional vegetable as well as the leafy greens. Murad says the MIND diet is high in nutrients and is not difficult to follow. Foods to avoid or limit include butter, cheese, red meat, and sweets. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian. Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever heard of an acoustic neuroma, also called a vestibular schwannoma? Not not until just recently. <laughs> There's only about two or 3,000 that are diagnosed every year in the U.S. An acoustic neuroma, or a vestibular schwannoma, is a benign, usually slow-growing tumor that develops on the main nerve that connects your inner ear with your brain. And here to tell us more about it, the symptoms, the diagnosis, why does it have two names, <laughs> the yeah. treatment too, is Mayo Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat Specialist, Dr. Matthew Carlson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carlson. Thank you for having me. So why does it have two names? So it's an antiquated term. The old term is acoustic neuroma, and that came from the idea that it came from the hearing nerve and that it was a neuroma coming from the nerve itself. Benign, and, neuroma is benign nerve tumor. Exactly. Okay. okay. And over time, we've realized that when we, uh, as we cited, when we realized it actually comes from, so the eighth cranial nerve, or the, uh, the hearing nerve, actually has three parts to it. It has two balanced nerves and one hearing nerve. And when you look at them more closely, you, you'll realize that most of these tumors are actually coming from the vestibular portion of the eighth nerve. So that's where the vestibular comes in. And they actually come from a growth on the outside of the nerve, the insulatory fibers of the nerve, and that's what the Schwann cells are. So the, the technically correct name is vestibular schwannoma. So all of the nerves have a surrounding sheath, kind of like insulation on a wire. And in that that sheath are the Schwann cells, and that's where the term schwannoma comes from. Exactly. Now, fortunately, this is a benign tumor, but rare. You must not, even at the Mayo Clinic, see that many every year. So it's interesting you bring that up. Historically, you've always said acoustic neuromas or vestibular schwannomas are very rare, but there's a lot of emerging evidence that says they're much more common than previously. 
that's probably been driven by the uh, greater access to MRI and also uh, screening protocols for asymmetrical hearing loss. And there's a recent study that we performed at the Mayo Clinic that actually determined that um, about 1 in 500 adults over the age of 70 will acquire an acoustic neuroma during their lifetime. Um, and one in 2,000 adults. So it's more common than we previously thought. It's just not being diagnosed? Um, you know, they're, they are being diagnosed with greater frequency. The, there's a lot of people that are walking around with them uh, that you wouldn't know necessarily have them. More particularly in recent years, they're, they tend to be smaller at diagnosis with less symptoms. Uh, and actually, the age demographic is increasing. So people are, tend to be older when they're diagnosed. So it, it's not uncommon that a person might have headaches or something like that, and they get an MRI scan, and they get an incidental diagnosis. So they weren't expecting to see that tumor there. And actually, about one in five or one in six tumors are diagnosed that way right now. Hmm. So if you do have symptoms, what are those symptoms? Yeah, so the most common symptom is asymmetrical hearing loss. So one ear hears worse than the other ear. And then the second most common symptom is ringing in the ear, and hearing loss and ringing kind of go hand in hand. Less commonly, a person might experience imbalance, and even more uncommonly, you can experience vertigo, where you have the sensation of the room spinning around. And what about treatment? Once you discover this, uh, does treatment depend on size and symptoms? Yeah, exactly. So um, probably the two primary things that determine the, uh, the direction of treatment are the number one thing is size, without question. And the second thing is probably patient age and comorbidities and patient preference. So when we Comorbidities talk, meaning other diseases, other exactly. medical conditions. They might make it more difficult for them to have surgery or some other treatment. And so when we talk about the treatment of a, a vestibular schwannoma, we really have to kind of talk about three different size categories. The first is the very small tumor. And the very small tumor is typically something a centimeter or a centimeter and a half or less in size. Patients with a tumor that size can either have observation, so you just get serial imaging, you get MRIs over time to see if it grows, and if it doesn't grow, you can just continue to watch it. Or you can get radiation treatment, and typically radiation treatment is done through the gamma knife, and that's a single-day out, single outpatient treatment with pretty low risk. Gamma knife? Gamma knife, yep. Can you explain that? Yeah, so gamma knife is a, a procedure that was actually originally developed in Sweden um, in the 1950s and 60s, and it's been really refined since that time. In the United States, Mayo Clinic has the third gamma, gamma knife unit that's ever been opened. Gamma knife uses a stereotactic head frame. So it's basically a small cage that's put on the head for a very short period of time. And that allows you to triangulate the tumor exactly in three-dimensional space and treat it with very low doses of radiation over an hour or so. Even when a tumor is very small, it's really close to important things. We say it's an area of high real estate. And so all the treatments are really focused to to treat the tumor and not affect surrounding structures. So you've got the smallest tumors, which you do a lot of watchful waiting on. Yeah, watchful waiting or radiation, or you can have surgery. The primary benefit of doing surgery on a very small tumor is if the person still has good hearing, you have an opportunity to intervene and maybe remove the tumor and save hearing. And that's a very controversial topic, but that's one of the main arguments for operating on a small tumor. All right, so what about the tumors that are a little larger? So once you exceed that 1.5 centimeter threshold, in most situations, then you're talking about some form of treatment, not just watching it anymore. And the idea is that once it starts getting much bigger than that, then you're starting to get into a different area, more complications and things. So at that point, you either choose radiation or surgery. And once you get over about 2.5 centimeters or 3 centimeters, we say really there's only one main strategy, and that's surgical removal. And the idea is if it's already two and a half or three centimeters, if you treat it with radiation, even if radiation is successful, it often causes a little bit of swelling initially when it's treated. And that little bit of swelling can cause a problem when it's already that size. And so typically a tumor over two and a half, three centimeters, you're treating it with surgery. And when you 
I'm kind of making it sound very simple, like it's just observation, <laughs> microsurgery, or radiation. But in reality, there's all these different directions within those therapies that you can actually go down. So it's a little bit complex. Are you less likely to uh, have hearing loss if you do the surgery as opposed to the radiation? That's a really good question. That's really, really controversial. It depends on whether you're a radiation therapist or a surgeon. Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's certain groups that believe uh, different things, and they've published um, you know, different outcomes that might suggest one direction or the other. The general rule of thumb is if you have a smaller tumor and you have good hearing, probably your best chance at staying the way you are the longest, meaning having the hearing you have is probably just watching it, but it probably will go down over time, over, slowly over time in most situations. Hmm. If you get radiation, it's unlikely to develop a sudden hearing loss from the radiation, your hearing loss will, will also go down, but probably a little bit faster than if you just observed it. So there's some radiation effect to the tumor. With surgery, it's kind of an upfront risk. If you win that gamble up front, then you're probably going to retain it longer. But with surgery for a really small tumor, the odds are about 50-50 for saving hearing on a small tumor. So if you, if you, if you do surgery, you might wake up with no, non-functional hearing. But if you do win that, that, that lottery, then you're more likely to retain it longer than if you did observation radiation. At least that's what most people think. Do these tumors ever turn malignant into cancer? By themselves, so being untreated, the chance of that's very, very low. There's probably a very, very small risk that with radiation it can change it into a, into a malignancy or a cancer. But even that risk is really low. We, we put it in the category of about 1 in 10,000 risk, so extremely low. Pretty small. All right, acoustic neuroma, also called a vestibular schwannoma. It's a rare benign tumor of the nerve that connects your inner ear to your brain, but as we've just heard, it may affect as many as 1 out of 500 people over the age of 70. Exactly. The most common symptoms include hearing loss on one side, tinnitus, or ringing in the ear on the affected side, and balance problems. Fortunately, multiple treatment options, most of which are successful. Our thanks to ENT specialist, Dr. Matthew Carlson. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Dr. Carlson. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll cover a topic that's difficult for men to discuss, genital skin conditions. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The skin is the body's largest organ. Now think about it that. You know, you sort of think it's the liver, but it's the skin. And diseases of the skin can occur anywhere, including the genitals, your private parts. <laughs> your private parts. Private parts. Skin issues related to the genitals can be itchy, painful, and embarrassing, but they're actually fairly common. On today's program, we'll talk about some of the more common genital skin problems in males. Our guest is Mayo Clinic dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. It's my pleasure to be here. And thank you for allowing me to talk about men's health because it's very important. And let's start with pearly penile papules. Yes. Pearly penile papules are a common reason that men seek dermatologist input because up to 40% of male adults have pearly penile papules on their penis. And essentially what they are are little um, small pearly beads that usually happen around the coronal sulcus or the bottom of the head of the penis. And they look like little um, frog spawn or caviar uh, nodules or little tapioca pudding eyeballs um, that hang off of the coronal head of the penis. 
And they're simply an overgrowth of blood vessels that happen probably due to friction because the genitals are busy. They sit in clothes and you walk and you sit and you do all sorts of things. And they can scare a lot of men because think people think that they're a cancerous growth or an infection and they worry that they might spread it elsewhere or to their partners. But it's, nothing to worry about. They're absolutely nothing to worry about, but we need to distinguish them from other things that can be worrisome, like sexually transmitted infections. But and you said quite common. They're very common. Up to 40% of men who are adults are thought to have pearly penile papules on their penis. You can get treatment for them. If you don't like them, they're cosmetically bothersome to you. Um, we can trim them off or freeze them off. But unfortunately, they tend to regrow because they were thought to be due most likely to friction, although we can't necessarily prove that. I think I'd keep mine. (laughs) Will you freeze them off, did you say? You can. You can freeze them off or you can remove them um, by the small uh, biopsy procedures or perhaps laser. But they simply regrow because... We don't know exactly why they occur, but we believe they occur because of friction. Do they come and go then? Do you... They don't usually come and go. Once they come, they stay. They stay. Okay. All right. You mentioned, in, inferred, that you can actually have cancer of the penis. True? Yes. So squamous cell carcinoma... So you can get cancer anywhere on the skin, and you can get multiple different types of cancer, and that also includes the penile area. If a gentleman is going to have skin cancer in his genital area, it's most likely squamous cell carcinoma, which is a skin cancer that most people are familiar with. They just don't think about it happening on the genitalia, and it can happen on the penis. It's much more common on the penis than elsewhere in the genital area in men. When that happens, it's usually on the penile head or on the foreskin, especially if you have certain risk factors. Um, Men are more likely to have squamous cell carcinoma on the penis um, if they have uncircumcised skin or if they have a long-term history of smoking or of diabetes or of genital warts or if they have a a suppressed immune system or a ton of sun exposure. Uh, You said a genital wart. How different does it look from a genital wart? That's a great question. So Squamous cell carcinoma can look like an erosion, sort of like you abraded something, like you skinned something if you fell down and skinned your knee, but instead you skinned something else. It can also look like a growth. Warts tend to look like a wart. They tend to be small and attached at the surface, and then they have like a pebbly surface. And a lot of times you can see little punctate hemorrhages or little dots of blood under the surface of the scaly skin, which are the warts on blood supply. Warts survive so well on the skin because they grow their own blood supply. They're very smart. Warts are caused by a virus called HPV. Now, having certain strains of HPV makes you more likely to have genital cancer, which is why with certain celebrities being... um, more open about their health history. We know that certain HPV strains can um, cause anal rectal cancer and things, but they also can cause genital cancers, including of the penis. So we like to treat uh, genital warts proactively. And we also, of course, want to detect squamous cell carcinoma on the penis. Does a pearly penile papule look like a skin cancer or a genital wart? No, a pearly penile papule is very small and it looks like a little water droplet um, hanging from the coronal head of the penis versus something that's a wound that's either eroded like you skinned yourself and it's not healing after two to three weeks, especially if you don't have a reason for you to have a wound, or if it's a tumorous growth, it's a nodule that is stable in size and keeps growing or is painful. We'd want that to get assessed. I hate to ask, but what's the treatment for cancer of the penis? That's a great question. It just depends on where it's at and how deep it is. 
And so the first thing is detection. So making sure that gentlemen are aware that the disease can exist so that they come into their primary care provider, a dermatologist or urologist who's a penile special surgeon so that we can detect it and take a small biopsy of the growth or the erosion to make sure that that is indeed squamous cell carcinoma because part of the problem with squamous cell carcinoma on the penis is you don't necessarily look down there all the time and you're a little embarrassed to go to the doctor or you just don't think it can exist so you don't if you don't know that something exists you can't go to the doctor to get it figured out and so the issue with penile cancer is awareness so that we can have early detection so that would mean you could potentially remove it locally without an amputation yeah, we're hopeful. Yes, absolutely. That would be our goal. All right. All right. That contact dermatitis. Yes, contact dermatitis. So I think people are well aware that the skin is the largest body organ. Thank you very much for promoting my favorite <laughs> organ. And it regenerates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and it has a lot of skin surface. It's the size of an NFL football field if you were to stretch it out, which is why it's the largest body organ. But what's so interesting is we think about being contact allergic to various things. Like, for example, people can be sensitive to nickel. And they think about that if they get an itch under their watch or under their rings or their earrings. But we forget that the genitalia sees a lot of different chemicals because of soaps and perfumes and over-the-counter medications. And it gets a lot of activity because of friction and sweat and occlusion with wearing clothes and sitting down and standing up and walking and running. And so the skin down there... And so that makes you predisposed that if you're kind of a sensitive person, you could develop an allergic contact dermatitis to things that you're using in that area. And then you'll have a red, burning, itchy genitalia. And you might think it's jock itch or you might think it's a sexually transmitted infection when actually it's a preservative or a chemical in something that you're using like a body wash or an over-the-counter lotion or something. Or condoms. Can you be able yes, to Yes, absolutely. Because condoms have rubber and latex. Even the ones that are rubber and latex-free have other chemicals that you can be allergic to. A lot of them have lubricants that you can be sensitive to. So yes, absolutely. All right. How, what about, uh, you talked about genital warts. What about genital herpes? So, and by the way, you mentioned that if you have genital warts, they should be treated. Yes. So we like to treat genital warts First of all, because we, we care about your own health and we don't want them to spread. And certain strains of warts can be oncogenic, meaning predisposing you to cancer. Uh, secondly, we don't want it to spread to other people if you're sexually active, because once you acquire the HPV virus, it's difficult to eradicate entirely. So warts of the genitalia are caused by HPV, the human papillomavirus. And there are over a hundred subtypes of human papillomavirus, but certain subtypes predilect for certain areas of the skin. And then herpes or canker sores um, are caused by the herpes simplex virus, which can be present in your mouth or can be present in your genitalia. And we used to think that one form of herpes was only for the mouth, and another form of the herpes virus was only for the genitalia. Type 1 and type 2. Correct. Yeah. But now we know that that's not the case, that you can have either type in either location, although one is more common in one area than in another. And so we like to also treat you for the herpes virus because we don't want you to um, have difficulty from that. But you can't cure it. Right? No, you house the virus once you've acquired it for the rest of your life, but we want to control it so that you don't spread it to others. But can't you spread it to others even if it's not active? You can. You can spread the herpes virus to others, um, especially without sexual precautions like condoms and things like that. But having an active florid infection increases your risk of transmission more than having a treated infection where you're simply a carrier instead of having a carrier with an outbreak. All right. We hit many of the common ones, skin diseases of the genitals. And if you're a man, 
it can be embarrassing to make an appointment to see your doctor if you've got a rash or a lesion down there, but it's important. Some conditions can lead to permanent skin changes, even cancer, but most issues can be treated and cured if you seek help. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this day for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.